May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. From now through to the end of February, the lectionary is going to have us reading from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Next Sunday, I'll again be speaking to the themes which Paul raises. And then, because Catherine and I will be away on vacation through the four Sundays of February, it will be up to other preachers to determine the degree to which they're going to focus on the Corinthians reading. I suspect, though, that when Jaylene stands here to preach two weeks from tonight, she'll have a hard time not speaking on the passage for that day as it really is one of Paul's most extraordinary pieces of writing. Not that I'm putting any pressure on <laughs> Every once in a while, the lectionary cycle has us read the opening verses of one of the epistles of Paul, and I used to wonder why. Wouldn't it make more sense to skip by those formal salutations and just dig into the meat of the letter? We heard them tonight. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There are three full verses of formalities, followed by another five verses in which Paul seems to be getting just kind of warmed up. Somewhere along the line, though, it occurred to me that such verses are appointed to be read publicly precisely to remind us that before these were scripture, they were letters. Someone else's mail, in fact, occasioned by very particular circumstances. And that's really helpful to keep in view whenever, whenever we consider Paul's writings. Now, I've long counted 1 Corinthians as my favorite of all of Paul's epistles, in part because it's so very clearly a letter written to a very particular community. I hear Paul's voice in this letter in a way that makes me feel that I can almost get a sense of what, what's making him tick. Paul as an actual person comes through here in an extraordinary way in part because he's trying to help this young church community work its way through some very real issues, very, very real issues, of the sort that could only surface in Corinth. In his memoirs, the Greek writer Alcaphron remarked, quote, Never have I been to Corinth. For I know pretty well the beastly kind of life the rich enjoy there, and the wretchedness of the poor. The significant port city and trade center, Corinth was so notorious for vice, that by the fourth century before Christ, a new word had made its way into the Greek language. To Corinthianize, was to engage in all manner of dubious sexual practice. Think Las Vegas without the glamour. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It's that kind of town. It's exactly the sort of place, though, to which Paul was inclined to gravitate, though not so he could try his hand at the ancient world's version of slot machines, 
Yes, he always maintained a relationship to the church in Jerusalem, the center of Jewish Christianity, and he would eventually end up, end his life in Rome, the center of the known world. But Paul spent most of his ministry out on the edges. And frankly, you couldn't get much edgier than Corinth. He arrived there around the year 50. It wasn't long before he'd begun to build a Christian community. Maybe there was something about Paul's powerful theology of grace that had a particular resonance in that city. After all, if you've been living in a place knee-deep in moral muck, and someone comes with this proclamation that says, you've never done anything so bad that God would turn you away. That's got to have some serious appeal. You are not going to be defined by the badness of your failings, much less by the goodness of your adherence to the law. You are simply going to be embraced by this wildly freeing grace of God made available in Christ. You're going to be freed by God's folly, in fact. For God's foolishness, Paul would write a little later, is wiser than human wisdom. God's weakness is stronger than human strength. He proclaimed it to the rich, living what Alcaphron had called their beastly kind of life, and to the poor in their wretchedness. Women, men, Gentiles, Jews, slaves, free, young, old. There was a place for everyone in this community that Paul was building. And when they came together to gather, it seemed as if the Holy Spirit all but danced in their midst there in Corinth. People spoke in tongues. Words of wisdom and prophecy poured out of the mouths of the most unlikely people. It must have been exhilarating to experience. And when, after a year or so, Paul sailed away to plant his next church community, maybe he stood on the deck of the ship and looked back and wondered if maybe Corinthian eyes would eventually take on a new meaning. Well, a couple of years later, Paul received a letter from the leaders of that Corinthian church. And while the letter that they sent him got lost, maybe Paul crumpled it up and threw it in the fire in frustration, we can get a pretty good sense of what they wrote to him by reading what he wrote back. And that's 1 Corinthians. Just two verses after today's reading closes, he writes, It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. And that's just the beginning, quarrels. That exhilarating community he left behind had come seriously off the rails. You can imagine the letter. Dear Paul, um, we've got some problems, and we could use your advice, we think. Someone has shacked up with his mother-in-law. And it's pretty clear that the young men, at least some of them from the church community, are paying regular visits to the local prostitutes. People in the community are beginning to launch lawsuits at one another whenever there's a grievance. And they've got a controversy brewing about whether or not a Christian can eat meat 
that's taken from an animal that had been sacrificed in a pagan temple. When they gather for the Lord's Supper, they seem to have entirely lost the idea that this was meant to be a shared meal. For some are getting roaring drunk, and others are being left to go hungry. You can almost hear the deep sigh coming from the depths of poor Paul's soul as he writes his reply. At times, he really seems to struggle to find the right counsel. He's convinced, for instance, at one portion, that women should keep their heads covered whenever they gathered for prayer and worship. But given his own powerful message that Christians are no longer bound by the law, he's not entirely sure why he thinks women should keep their heads covered. A good half of the 11th chapter of this epistle finds him searching for a good reason. And you can kind of read it as he's thinking out loud. And in the end, he resorts, rather unconvincingly in my opinion, to social convention. He says, if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God, period. He kind of sounds like, you know, your great uncle, who says, you really shouldn't have purple hair. You really shouldn't. We've never had purple hair. You shouldn't have purple hair. Go change your hair color. But then there's these other moments when he simply soars, as in chapter 12, when he gifts the Christian tradition with one of its most important and abiding theological images that of our identity as being the body of Christ. Still, surely there was something heartbreaking for him to have to write this epistle in the first place. Paul can be such a realist in his writings, and it must have been tough to summon the courage to believe that that Corinthian church would be able to make it through the mess that they'd made of things. As Frederick Buechner puts it in his essay, Paul Sends His Love, quote, It is this which in many ways is what 1 Corinthians is essentially about. Paul's sense of futility and despair at war with his exultant hope. The terrible tension between the in spite of and the because of of his restless and often anguished faith. The heart of 1 Corinthians is this struggle in which he desperately wants to tune them up, maybe even give them a little bit of a smack, and that part of him that believes deeply in their future. Back for a minute to the passage that Jace read to us aloud this evening. The formal salutation rolls into a section that I used to hear as Paul trying to strategically win over the ears of his audience by saying some very kind things to them before plunging in to his much tougher challenges. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in Jesus Christ. You are not lacking in any spiritual gift 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. God will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's all packed into just a couple of verses. You know, I used to hear that as, as a sort of a good cop treatment before he swings around into playing the tough cop who's going to try to tune them up. But I don't hear it that way anymore. I think what Paul's doing is he's trying to tell them who they truly are so that they might again begin to find a way to be that. He tells them something about their fundamental identity, maybe to give them the courage to live into it. He's trying to give them back who they are. Again, from Frederick Beekner. To pray for your enemies, to worry about the poor when you have worries enough of your own, to start becoming yourself fully by giving of yourself prodigally to whoever needs you, to love your neighbors when an intelligent fourth grader could tell you that the way to get ahead in the world is to beat your neighbor to the draw every chance you get. That was what this God asked, Paul wrote. That was who this God was. That was who Jesus was. And in those things, those very basic things, Paul bequeathed to them, the Corinthian Christians can again begin to find who they truly are. And so will we, if we pay attention. As we're given this opportunity over these weeks to read someone else's mail, eavesdrop on their particular foibles and failings, so may we get called back to who and what we truly are. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.